The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. Today we're going to talk about marketing fine art photography. And the book publication. Yes, it's out. It has been a long time. <laughs> yeah, I think it was almost two years. But we finally did it. Yes. And that's quite an accomplishment. It was a very difficult book to write. And to edit. Oh, definitely the editing. But we will... Uh, not go over all the difficulties here. We're going to go over what the book is about. I think that's much more important. And much more interesting. And uh, the book has been now out for, what, a month, about 30 days, more or less? Yeah, just a little over a month, because I think Amazon got it on June 7th. Yeah, and we got it on June 7th, too, or just about. And it has been very well received. It has. So far, all the reviews are excellent. And... um, it's been very helpful to people that have purchased it. Yes. And we also have shipped all the books that were ordered from us, even though there was a strike in Canada and it was a little delayed. Everything is now back to normal. Yes, it is. So um, l- let's go over some of the things that we've heard from readers. I think wh- one of the things that I found very uh, interesting is that people that are not selling their work find the book interesting and useful. Yes. And that's because I think it covers, on the one hand, uh, a definition of fine art photography, what is fine art photography, and also it provides an account of uh, how to do this, you know, for a living, which, you know, even though you may or may not want to do yourself, is interesting. It is very interesting. Because the book is based on our experience, selling fine art photographs at shows and uh, in different places and also through stores. But also, even if you don't sell your work and you're going to have an art exhibit or you're going to show your work somewhere, this book is also helps you in that regard as well. The only difference is, is that, you know, if you sell it, you have a price tag. Right, because now there is so many photographers doing this uh, you know, as a quote-unquote career at different levels, that you have to promote your work regardless of whether you want to sell it or not. And it's a very interesting uh, situation where you have to market your work regardless of whether you want to make money or not, just so that people are informed of what you're doing. And you have to work just as hard, whether you're going to sell the work or whether you're not going to sell the work. It's a lot of work. You put the same amount of time and energy into it. Yeah, and there's more and more people every day, you know, doing it uh, at different levels. And if you don't do it, you're basically going to be just passed over. You're going to be ignored. Yeah. So what are some of the comments that you have received from people who purchased the book directly from us because they can't, you know, write feedback or comments on Amazon if they didn't buy it from Amazon? Right. Well, the, the comments I've received fall in two categories, people that are selling their work and uh, who write to him to let me know how they find it helpful and useful for their business and people who are not selling their work and who email back to let me know that it's been interesting just as a text you know talking about like i said uh, you know a definition of fine art photography and and just a general outlook on life and also for some of them how useful the book has been in other endeavors besides photography you know, in other business endeavors. Oh, definitely. It's not just limited to uh, photography. Right, because basically marketing is marketing. And definitely I'm applying rules of marketing to fine art photography. But by extension, they're immediately applicable to any sort of art. Oh, definitely. It doesn't matter. And 
by further extension, they're applicable to a variety of products. The bottom line being that you sell the products on the basis of quality and not on the basis of price or quantity. You know, because basically there is two directions you can take when you market anything. You can you have to set yourself apart from the competition. Otherwise, you know, if there's no reason to buy from you because you're just the same as everybody else, then why buy from you, right? You know, you have to explain to the customers why to buy from you, and that's because there is a difference. And the difference can be that you have the lowest price. Or the difference can be that you have a higher quality product. Mm -hmm. And it's basically one or the other. And most people that don't understand marketing or haven't studied marketing go for the lowest price because there's no marketing involved. The price speaks for itself. Right. You know, if you have the lowest price in town, well, that sets you apart. The problem is all it takes for somebody to compete with you is to drop the price further. And that's a big problem because as we've seen at shows and we've seen it directly, there are artists that will underprice you just to make a sale, even if that means they make no profit. Yes. And we've had examples. You know, did you want to go over some of them? Well, I just remember when we were selling on the porch of the El Tovar, you know, where the other art, where it wasn't uh, a photographer that was selling with us but two photographers were selling and I remember one of them said to us you know I will take a loss just so the other photographer does not get the sale it's a form of murder suicide oh yeah definitely I mean it makes no sense in business and then it makes them angry they're very angry and frustrated it makes no sense it makes them angry it serves nobody but they do it and that's because when you price on the level, when you make the difference on the level of price, when you sell on the basis of price, you are very exposed to people that are going to undercut you. And, uh, you know, that's an extreme example, but, you know, it does happen. At any rate, if you go on to a price war and you keep underpricing your competition and your competition keeps underpricing you, eventually you get to the point where nobody makes any money. I mean, there's a point where the profit just stops. Yes. And that's the problem. So because of that, you know, based on my experience and based on the fact that, you know, there's really no winning there. And also based on the fact that creating art is very expensive. When you think about the equipment, the travel, the supplies, the time, and the fact that it's a very small market, you cannot really price it, uh, sell it on the basis of price. You have to sell it on the basis of quality. Well, and I remember what our accountant told us this year when he said, you know, some people make money in spite of themselves. Yeah, but they're lucky. They don't know why, but they're lucky. Oh, I could not believe it. It's Las Vegas. I was in total shock. Right. They spin the wheel. It lands on the number that they put all their money on, and so be it. But the problem is the next year or the year after, sooner or later, they're going to lose. Right. You know, you, you can't run a business on the basis of luck. It doesn't work. It's, it's absurd. And so, you know, when it comes to art, what has worked for us has been to sell on the basis of quality. And, you know, we did not start there. I mean, we did what everybody did. We started selling on the basis of price. Oh, I remember some photographs may have had a little bit of banding. But when you sell quantity and it's so cheap, yeah. you know, if there's a little bit of banding, oh, well. Nobody cares. I don't have time yeah. to make more. So right. I got to sell the ones that have banding on and them. And customers are not very demanding because they know they're getting a fantastic deal. I mean, when we started, we were selling it by tens for $10 a piece. 
You know, now I don't even sell it by tens anymore, and my lowest price is around five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars. So a tremendous change. But of course now, you know, not only do we not have any bending, <laughs> right, but we also have extremely high quality materials. We pay attention to detail. We redo the print or the mat or any aspect of it if it's not right. Oh, yeah. We guarantee it for a full year. I mean, you know, on some pieces I have a lifetime warranty. It makes no difference. If people are satisfied with the work, whether you have a one-year warranty, a 10-year warranty, a lifetime warranty, they'll never return it. So, you know, it makes no difference. Either they like it or they don't. You know, it's that simple. People ask me all the time, well, aren't you scared that, you know, you have a one-year warranty? What if everybody returns the work? That's absurd. It doesn't happen. You know, you buy art because of an emotional involvement with the work, you know. Uh, it's not like buying a toaster oven, you know, or, or a rake or, you know, a ping-pong table. You know, you, you buy it because you're emotionally involved with it and there's no reason to let it go if you like it. You right. Know? I also think that some, I've asked a number of artists, I'll point to their product or I'll look at their product and I'll ask them, how much does this product cost for you to make? And they have absolutely no idea. And so that's where the price war is very dangerous because since they do not know how much it costs them to make their product and they keep slashing the prices, they have no idea where they are even going. Yeah, and if somebody comes and wants to negotiate with them, they are totally in the dark. They are. They might make a profit, they might not make a profit. And that's where the accountant comes in. They make money, they're lucky, in spite of themselves. Right. They, you know, if you ask them, what's your profit on that, they'll draw a blank. You know, hopefully, there's some profit, but maybe there isn't. Right. Who knows? You know? No, every I mean, aspect yeah. of the business is very important. Even doing inventory is very important. I can look at a case of mat board, the number of 32 by 40 sheets in there, and I know if there's $150 sitting there or if there's $75 sitting there. But I have found that some artists do not do inventory that way. So when right. they look up at a pile of products, yeah. you know, maybe it's a pile of postcards or boxes of notes cards or whatever, they don't look at it and say, okay, that's, you know, each box is maybe 50 bucks. So they're not saying, okay, that's $500 right there. You know, yeah, and you know, I know the cost of everything, and I know by looking exactly how much money is sitting there. Right, because you don't want to tie up too much money in inventory. No, you don't. There's no point having something sitting around, paid for, if you can have it in the store and they deliver it to you when you need it. You know, you have to be smart about it. And and there is a lot of things about running a business that are not about photography at all. Right. Actually, most of it is not about photography. It's not about creating a beautiful photograph. It's about running a business in a in the proper way, in a way. Right. Um, in a sound manner, in a logical manner, and in a profitable manner. But um, also realizing that when you're in business, every mistake that you make is pretty much going to cost you money. Yeah. And you're going to learn, hopefully, you'll learn real quick well, to make learn, fewer and fewer mistakes. You because learn at, every, the, at the school of hard knocks. Oh, yeah, you yeah. do. Because, but you don't have to do that. You can buy my book and not have to attend the school of hard knocks. Because basically what the book is about is what works. We've, right. take, we've basically have tried everything. And believe us, we haven't started by being successful. We've started by being beat over the head with an ugly stick and by attending the school of hard knocks, you know, 
many, many times. We've taken the same class for several times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought I'd never graduate, you know. But eventually we did graduate. And it happened when we hired a marketing consultant that told us how to do it. You know? Right. But basically said, you know, let's forget about the beautiful photograph. That's not what it's about. Let's talk about sound business principles, you know, and, and let's look at, at that and, and shape the business in that direction. And, and what was interesting to us is that when we hired that person, it wasn't because I wasn't selling enough. It was because I was selling too much. Yes. And we could not keep up with the demand. We were selling so much. And at the same time, we were, you know, basically extremely tired because we were working all the time. And we weren't making all that much money because our profit margin was very, very small. It was yeah. very and, small. And of course, we were doing volume and we were doing low quality. And the minute we started offering higher quality, you know, at higher prices, everything changed. And that's when we really started, you know, being financially successful. We were successful in terms of selling, but we weren't successful in financial terms, you know. And I think that's a typical case for a lot of artists because artists, um, for the most part, don't really look at how much money they make. They look at how many pieces they sell. Yes. You know, you go to a show, you talk to an artist, you say, well, you know, if I'm not indiscreet, how is it going? And the artist, if they answer the question, which most of them will, will tell you something like, oh, it's going great. I just sold 20 pieces today. Well, who cares how many pieces you sold? Because if you sold 20 pieces at $5, you know, that's 100 bucks. Right. You know, on the, on the other hand, you can ask another artist, how many pieces did you sell? And they sell one. Well, if they sold one for $1,000, they have $950 more. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so the number of pieces is irrelevant because every artist has a different pricing system, you know. So, of course, if everybody had the same pricing, then it would make sense to compare the number of sales. But when the prices are widely different, it makes no sense. No, I agree with you. I would have... When I did the shows in Scottsdale, there were a number of artists that would repeatedly say to me, well, you know, I was watching today and you really didn't have that many sales. I mean, you may have had five or six sales, you know, which right. is true. But, which, yeah. but, you know, the first sale was for $1,000 and the second sale was for $800. And okay, so you had right. maybe 20 sales of $15, where right. are you at? Who's the winner? Who's ahead, right? Yeah. And, you know, people forget that when you sell art, you are really addressing a very small audience. You know, it's, it's normal. And they couldn't tell because if the customer was buying a large piece that I was shipping, they never saw it leave the wall. So right. they just assumed yeah. so then that's that my problem. sales right. were, you know, very small, you right. know. They don't know what, what's selling because if somebody buys a large piece and you ship it, then they think that they are walking away with something that's in their bag and it's so small they can't even see it. So they might think they, are, they just bought a note card when you actually sold a 40 by 50, right? right. So it's another level of, of problem. You know, it, people tell me all the time, we had a, a student here just yesterday uh, telling us, I'm just going to go around the galleries to find out what sells. I told him, it's not going to work. How are you going to find out what sells? Because it's on the wall? Um, you know, they are not necessarily going to tell you. Um, you have to go with somebody that has the experience and who is willing to share their knowledge, you know, like us, because we do a lot of teaching. You, you can't just go to a store and find out what sells by looking around. No, but a lot of artists will do that. They'll look around and they'll see what other galleries or they'll see what other photographers are selling. And so they'll go to those same locations and take pictures because they assume that that is what is selling. Right. Which is, you know, well, it may it may work or it may not, and and of course, people that do that forget that the number one 
one selling point in art is personal style. Correct. I mean, the yes. reason why people buy art is not because of the art, it's because of the artist. The number one selling point of art is the artist. That's why, you know, the biggest names make the most money, you know, because their name is valuable. It's not because they photograph location X, Z, or Y. If you photograph, you know, the most famous locations and you sell on the basis of location, you're not going to make as much money as if you sell on the basis of your name. And the reason for that is because anybody can go to that location and take that photo of that location. But when you sell on the basis of your name, there's only one of you, and that's you. Nobody else can take your name, right? So that sets you apart. Mm -hmm. And that's why I always say, you know, if you have to start on the basis of the location, so be it. I started there, but you know, the sooner you can go and sell on the basis of your name, the better. Right. And the problem, and the reason why more people don't do it, is because in order to sell on the basis of your name, you have to develop a personal style. And that is the most challenging thing in art and in photography. That's the chopping stone for most people. You know, that, that's a tremendously difficult endeavor. It's not taught very much, if at all. I mean, we teach it, but there is very few resources outside of us. Um, and it's really something that you have to do in a dedicated manner. It's not going to happen by accident. And you can't buy anything to help you. I mean, you can, you know, study. You can take seminars. You can study without tutorials. But you can't go to a camera store and buy a camera that's going to give you a personal style. You know, I mean, sure, you can buy a filter, you can buy a plugin, you can use a weird technique, but anybody else can do it. So it's not personal, you know, and, and that's really the number one thing with personal style as far as, you know, checking whether you have a personal style or not. And that is, can somebody else do it easily? You know, and only if all it takes is a filter, then of course anybody can do it. You know, I remember uh, at one point I was using a blue-yellow polarizer, and I thought that was really extraordinary because it would shift the colors to either blue or yellow. <laughs> right. Well, that was really unique, and I suppose we could have called it a personal style until everybody else found out about it, and all of a sudden everybody has blue and yellow photographs, and it wasn't unique. Right. Right. Because it's it's something that somebody can go to a store or go online and buy, and the same with you know whatever you know, fits that same category. Any, anything that somebody can buy, somebody will buy. Because it's an easy solution, all it takes is money. But when it requires dedication, hard work, you know, a lot of time and effort, trial and error, it's, it's going to be a whole lot more challenging to copy. Um. Well, some of the chapters in the book that I really like are the show booth layouts, where you have, well, we have actual examples of the different shows that we did, but also the different ways of setting up a show booth and the reasons why. Right, because there are ways that work and ways that don't. And each show, some shows are very um, unique to certain booth setups. And sometimes you don't know, like sometimes when we would do shows. We weren't exactly sure how we were going to set up the booth until we actually saw exactly where we were going to be. Right. Sometimes you have to feel the terrain. You, know, yeah. you have to be there and, and make a call. Uh, but, but there are definitely, regardless of the shows, certain setups that just won't work. We know it. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, you know, you do that at any show, you're guaranteed it's not going to work. And, and we talk about that. And, of course, we talk about the ones that work. 
you know it's very very important and again that has nothing to do with the photography you can have the most beautiful photographs in the world if you have the wrong booth setting you're not going to sell right and and that's really something that a lot of artists get frustrated at because they're like you know i don't get it nobody's buying i've got fantastic work i spent a fortune on the booth well yeah but the layout just you know doesn't work right i mean you know i could have told you you know first thing when i walked in well, and I think our examples also how to set up an office outdoors is also very good. The tools that you need, I can't, you know, I had a number of my girlfriends that would come running over to my booth. They would make a sale, but they didn't have either a bag to put the work in that somebody purchased. So they would run over to my booth and ask for a bag or they needed, if it was something fragile, I mean, I would give them a piece of bubble wrap, but they were not prepared. Yeah. And, and it's really frustrating on the part of the customer. And I think it, it stops repeat sales because I remember uh, going to a show in Scarsdale as buyers and we bought a jewelry case, handmade wood jewelry case, you know, Beautiful. Beautiful. $500. I know. And uh, we buy it, we pay, and the artist just hands it over. And I look at him and I say, well, aren't you going to give me a bag? I mean, wrap it up in bubble wrap, you know, protect it. I mean, I'm driving a sports car. It's small. I'm going to have to put it in a very tiny trunk and I'm going to, you know, swerve around the corners and the thing is going to bounce around. Exactly. And, and right there, I thought I should never have bought this because, you know, I'm... I'm in a vehicle that doesn't allow me to take this on my lap, you know, or put it on the back seat. I have no back seat. It's going to be damaged. And he looked at us and he's like, no, all I have is a, what was it, a plastic bag from Safeway, right? Oh, yeah. And it was sliding you know. around in the trunk. I think eventually, I'm not sure well, if I ended up holding. we had to use clothes to, to sort oh, of, yeah, we you know, used protect our jackets. it. But, you know, when somebody makes an important purchase, have the materials to protect the purchase. Even if that means increasing the price. And again, you know, that's the whole idea of sitting on a piece of quality. Well, you know that the, the artist obviously protected it because he was from out of state. So he drove a long distance. But you know, that bubble wrap or whatever that packing material it is that you use, that's part of the cost of the product. So he's protecting it <laughs> to, to, to take it to the show right. and, and all the way until it's sold. And then once it's sold, it's not protected anymore. Right. That's just wrong. Increase the price by 20 bucks, 520. No problem. What do we care? If you can afford $500, you can afford $520. No, definitely. But the customer has the piece protected, and when we get home... It's not going to be it's, damaged. It's in perfect condition. We went back to that show another year. There was other boxes I wanted, and I passed. Yes. Because I don't want to go through that again. It was hard enough, and you know maybe I did not have clothes to pack it in the next time, or, or maybe I just thought I was lucky, and I don't want to take the chance again. Right. So it stops repeat sales. You know, the purchase is not complete until the piece is in your home. That, that's the thing that's very, very, very important. It is. I, I know that you and I were going to go to an art show. And because of that one incident when that happened with the jewelry box, I actually went upstairs to the framing room and took some of my own bubble wrap and things to wrap up in case we bought something. And that's kind of ridiculous to ask yeah. the customer to do all of that because they may purchase something at the right. art show. Yeah, you shouldn't go to the store with your own packing material. <laughs> to an art show with yeah. my own packing material. I mean, think about it. Let's say you go to a store that sells tableware, you know, and you're going to buy plates and glasses and cups and, and things like that. And, and you're leaving home with a sack of foam peanuts and some bubble wrap because you know the store <laughs> yes. isn't going to pack it for you. I mean, how long do you think that store would be in business? Right. right. Or yeah. how, how long 
before I get tired of doing that and say, you know, enough. I'm yeah, but done. I mean, eventually they're going to be out of business because yes. it's it's unacceptable. People are are going to go to the next store that does the packing and and let go of the first one. Oh, definitely. You know? and, and I think we have that a lot with with artists. You know, uh, them asking themselves, well, why is it? I can't I can't understand why it's not working. Well, they, they always think my work is not good enough. No, it, it in practice, and we've done that by looking at the work of a lot of artists. You know, uh, that worked with us. It's rarely the work. It's it isn't very, the very, work, yeah. yeah. It's it's a low self-esteem thing to think my work is the problem. The problem is usually something totally different that they are not looking at because they don't think it's important, but the customer looks at because for them it's important. Right. You know, like the packing, and there's many other aspects of it. Well, this yeah. book has one chapter that's dedicated to the 26 fundamental principles of salesmanship, which is really important. Uh, salesmanship is extremely important, and I use that a lot. Um, and it's not innate. We were not born with that Oh, knowledge. no, it's something I had yeah. to practice and practice and learn and, and practice. study. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, and, and all, I still do. Absolutely, because um, you forget. And also, there's always a way to improve yourself. Oh, definitely. And good salesmanship, you know, I don't want to say anything bad, but is very rare. I mean, we go to store after store after store, and... Uh, you know, the salesmanship is not there. Or, or people just don't do the right thing. I mean, we just bought uh, a table runner at a store because we had seen it advertised on TV. It's a furniture store. They had huge discounts. And we walked in and they are, everything is 20% or 40% off. Eventually, we find a table runner. I take it to the counter, the checkout counter, and I'm not getting a discount. So eventually, I asked, well, does the discount apply to the accessories, right? Because right. I understand it applies to furniture, but does it apply to accessories? And the table runner is an accessory. And uh, the salesperson looked at me and said, oh, yeah, yeah, I can give you $40 off on that. Well, I shouldn't have to ask. No. Right? And it, they should be straightforward they, about it. should be it. straightforward. I mean, either, you know, there is a sign that says no discount on accessories, or there is a sign that says discount on everything in the store. Because, you know, it's a $150 piece. So $40 is actually a very significant discount. It's, so it's 30%. Right. Well, um, or even more than 40 percent, 30 percent. So, you know, it's not exactly peanuts. right? No. Um, and I got it. But if I did not ask, you know, I would have passed on it. And, and honestly, a lot of people that are not in sales would hesitate to ask because they don't want to be pushy. They, they, they are not sure, you know, and, right. you know, I ask because, you know, I'm in sales. And so I don't hesitate. You know, I'm like, OK, there's a sign that says, you know, 20% off on the whole store, 40% on the whole store, you know, why am I not getting it, right? Right. You know. Um, I so remember when we went to uh, a show in Scottsdale that I think it was the expo, the one that they do for several right, months right. in the winter. And I remember I asked the artist how much their sculpture was. They were selling a very large sculpture. And she told me that I couldn't afford it. She right. didn't tell me the price, right? But she told me I couldn't afford it. Yeah, on the basis of what? Because on the basis you, of you don't have the right shoes, or no? Because I was also, um, I don't know, yeah. on the basis because of she what? looked at you and she she made a call. Well, she qualified you on the basis of your appearance. Yes. And one of the things that we talk about in the rules of salesmanship is appearance is not a reliable way of qualifying a customer, because a lot of people today will dress in a way that is way below their actual financial status. Oh, definitely. Um, the, the car that they drive might be a much more accurate way, but of, of course, if you're inside a tent at an expo show, 
uh, you have no access to the parking lot. And even if you had access to the parking lot, how do you know who drives what, right? Um, but, you know, we, we take us, for example, we drive an expensive car, but then I wear, you know, shorts. Um, uh, what do I wear? Converse and a T-shirt, you know. And, and if somebody makes a call on my financial status based on that, they're going to think I'm destitute, you know. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, when you deal with good salespeople, you know, people that have actually studied salesmanship and that have experienced, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, with a variety of customers, they don't make that call. No, they don't. Uh, what they look at is your attitude and your demeanor. Yeah. You know, whether, you know, if they tell you the price is $10,000, whether or not right. you're shocked or surprised or, yeah. you know, what your reaction is to it. That's because we, we went to the Bentley dealership uh, last winter and you told me, do you think they're even going to tell us the time of day? And I said, listen, we have the one thing that we need and that is money. <laughs> and we were treated very well. We test drove a Bentley and they took us very seriously. And they even sent us uh, a car. Oh, definitely. And that thank you for, for right, trying. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for test driving the Bentley this afternoon. It was a pleasure meeting you. If you are interested in purchasing a Bentley in the future, please uh, contact me. I would be more than help you in this regard. Right. It was a very, very nice car. Yeah, and, and we spent you know an hour or so with them. Um, and, and that's because the questions that I had were very, very specific. Uh, you know, here's a dealership that's selling luxury cars and they sell uh, you know maybe 10 different brands and i was not interested in any brand except bentley um i i wanted to test drive one and i had very specific questions about the mark well i had never even yeah. ridden in a bentley right I, well that's what i told him i said yeah. i'm very curious to know how this car drives and you know th there's no hesitation you know you're not there to just you know look around you know, you, you have a mission in a way, you know, yes. and, and that tells the story. You know, uh, when somebody comes and says, tell me more about that, which is exactly, you know, the salesperson approached us and he said, how can I help you? And I said, well, tell me more about Bentley. That's it. This person is here for a purpose. <laughs> I'm not just here to look at, you know, luxury cars. And the right? questions are right. specific. Right. Yeah, because I asked him, what is the difference between uh, Jaguar and Bentley? And he was insulted. <laughs> he said, yes, I remember. Sir, there is no comparison. Is. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I thought, oh, you hit a, a, yeah. hit a what sore What did he spot say? There. Jaguars are mass-produced. Bentleys take a month to build. Yes, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. He, he was like, I, I'm like, so but, I actually apologized. I said, you know, I'm sorry. I just had no idea. He said, that's understandable. Yeah, <laughs> but, then, but then when you compare it, you said, well, what is the comparison to a Bentley and a Rolls Royce? Right. Actually, there's very little. He I said mean, there's, there's no difference. Basically, the difference is that. Bentley is a competitive mark, you know, it's performance oriented, right. while Rolls Royce is purely luxury and comfort oriented. And prestige. Um, and and Bentley used to be owned by Rolls Royce, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, you know, they sold the mark, I think, to VW uh, a few years ago, but now uh, it's an independent brand. And you know, when, when a mark owns several luxury brands, they are usually promote one to the deficit of the other, you know, and what happened with Rolls Royce is they promoted Rolls Royce, they sold Rolls Royce, they wanted to sell Rolls Royce, and they were sort of keeping Bentley in the back burner. If you wanted one, yeah, sure, you could have one, but what they really wanted to sell was Rolls Royce. Right. So they sort of underplayed it, did not develop the mark as much, did not have a full line, did not want to make it stand out. And the minute they sold it, then, of course, the manufacturer that bought it, uh, I think it's VW, um, 
made it a prominent brand, started promoting the fact that it was a performance-oriented, very contemporary, very attractive to a younger buying audience, and uh, it took off. Right. You know. But they are basically twice the same cars, except just different directions. Yeah. I was um, trying to remember, I thought you had a comment from somebody in regards to the book that studied economics or studied business? We, we, he, had, we had a comment from somebody who is a financial advisor or was a financial advisor, and he said that he had witnessed uh, all of the recommendations that I make in regards to financial uh, uh, you know, dealings uh, on a first-hand basis and that what I was talking about was accurate. Oh, yeah. it was right on. Yeah. Because financial management is really a very, very important key to success you know because eventually you know if you're going to be in business it's to be successful right and uh, it's tempting to think that how much you sell or how high your prices are are representative of success well they are but eventually the true representation of success is how much money you keep because if you make you know a lot of money but then you pay it all back <laughs> right or you blow it or you it disappears one way or another you're not any further ahead than you were before right so you have to manage your finances very well. And that includes, you know, saving money, investing money, uh, knowing what to do, basically. Right. You know. And cash is very dangerous because, man, you can spend cash fast. Yeah, well, yeah, but also credit cards are dangerous. I mean, you know, potentially any form of payment is dangerous if it's abused. Yes. You know? So you have to be very wise about it. And uh, it, it's something that, you know, again, we had to learn. And I think that it's a large part of why we've been successful is extremely good money management, extremely good financial management. Oh, definitely. Um, I remember, I know this has nothing to do with selling artwork, but I remember when I was waitressing and bartending and I was getting tips every day. You know, you had that cash every day. Right. So I'd spend it every day. You know what I mean? You were like, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah, you can't is... you can't do that. I mean, that's your income, and every time you get cash, you spend it all. And so then I remember afterwards, uh, you said, you know what? Every single night, you're going to have to go to the bank and make a deposit. And remember we did that? We walked yeah. to the bank every single night and deposited all the cash just because, you know, I don't know what was going on through my head. Because I realized that... <laughs> If you were to put it in a jar and, and keep the jar at home, eventually you would take it out and exactly. use it. Exactly. Yeah. Use it for something. And, and the problem is that as a waitress, your paycheck is actually lower than your income through tips. It is. I think I was only getting $2 and something cents an hour. Yeah. So yeah. you're making most of your money through tips. And of course, it's very tempting to think that you're flush because you have all this cash. You in have your cash pocket. all the time. But you're not flush. Right. It's it's really your paycheck, you know, and and if you if you blow it by thinking that you know it's uh, disposable income, then you won't have enough money to pay your rent. You won't have enough money to pay you know your normal expenses. Exactly. So so it's it's really an important realization, and we have the same problem with artists at shows or or any sort of uh, income producing activity. Uh, but at shows, you know, one of the things that happen is because the majority of people carry their purchase with them, you have to charge sales tax. You know, there's no sales tax when you ship an item out of state, but there is sales tax if the person takes it with them, regardless of where they live. And of course, if you have a very successful show, you might have hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars in sales tax money. That money is not yours. That's right. It belongs to the state. For all purposes, you serve the role of a tax collector for the state, and then you have to repay the tax to the state. 
But if you think you're flush because you have all that money and you spend it, you're in trouble. Yes. And we've met artists that have been in trouble because they spend the tax money, the sales tax money. Right. And of course, you can do the same with income tax. You know, I mean, we owe income tax, you know, at the tune of 30%. Well, that's a sizable amount if you do well. Can't spend it. No, <laughs> gotta save. You know, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a big surprise otherwise at, on tax day to find out that you owe that much and you don't have the first penny. Right. So it's all about financial management. It's very, very important. It's not enough to make money. You have to keep it, you know. Exactly. And then with, you know, the state of Arizona, they don't want me to file every month. They just want me to file once a year. So at the at the end of that one year, you better have enough money to pay them what you owe them. <laughs> right. So you have to plan. You, know. you have to plan. You know, people ask us, why are you, you successful? Know. And I think in many ways, you can sum it up in one word, planning. Oh, you know? definitely. Planning I is mean, the mother of success. Maybe necessity is the mother of invention, but father is, uh, planning is the father of success, right? <laughs> I know, I know. I plan all the time. Yeah. Even if it's if I'm going to the post office, I still have a list. I have a plan of everything I need to do. You can never plan enough. I don't think know? so. I mean, you know, even, even if you plan your trip, you know, if you go run errands, you can plan carefully so that you use the minimum amount of gas or you cover That's the exactly minimum amount of distance. That's exactly what I do. You know? I do. And I do it in a logical fashion. <laughs> that I, <laughs> I do a loop. I mean, you think about the postman, right? Or the post lady, right? They have a plan. They are not going from the post office to mailbox randomly. Right. They, they have a route. Well. So that they don't go twice in the same place. Waste management, yeah. recycling. Right. Yeah. They all have their route and they yeah. all have their, their way People of are doing shocked it. because they're like, oh my God, you, you know, I just realized you had a plan. Well, listen, everybody that's successful has a plan. You know, that goes without saying. If you don't have a plan, I can guarantee you one thing, it's not going to happen. Right. You know, yeah. You have to have a plan. I mean, you know. That's some of the foundation of success, basically. So chapter eight is a, is a great chapter where you talk about bestsellers and what makes a bestseller. The two types of bestsellers also. Yes. And how to create a bestseller. Yeah, because a lot of people, you know, I think that the two most often asked questions in regard to marketing is how do I price my work? And what's the bestseller? You know, what are your bestsellers? And, and I answer both in the book. You know, there's an entire chapter on pricing. There is, I think, three or four different pricing strategies. And then there's an entire chapter on bestsellers. Yeah. Right. What makes a bestseller? Uh, what are the bestsellers? And also, you have examples in the book. Very important. Yeah. Yes. You have to have examples. And we have an example. The cover of the book is uh, the photograph at Petra first house. Which I obviously know. was a bestseller. Well, this, yes, yeah. definitely. And this photograph is, is very special. Yeah, when the publisher uh, said, uh, what do you want on the cover? That was a non-question because I, it had to be that one. Yes. Why? Because, you know, there is no better one, right? We sold enough of it to buy our first house cash from the proceeds. And, uh, you know, that says it all, right? People say you can't make money without. Well, I'm sorry, but... I disagree. <laughs> and I have evidence to support my disagreement. We could have literally yeah. done a show at the El Tavar with just that one image. We could have, if we wanted to be extremely, uh, you know, simple, we could have had a show with one photo. Yes. In many different sizes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Many different presentations, yeah. but it would have sold. And it would have worked. It would yeah. have. Yeah. 
Everybody wanted but that But of course, one. if you can have a show with 20 or, or ideally all bestsellers, then you're going to do way better. Oh, definitely. You know? And I think at one point, that was our goal, to have a show where we sold only bestsellers. Well, at the end yeah. of each show, you know, you would ask me, yeah. you know, what was selling, what wasn't selling, what wasn't selling, never went back. That was it. it was yeah, gone. if it doesn't work, then why insist? Right. Um, so I don't believe in I have to sell all of the products that I bought or made or I have to sell all of these photographs before I can sell my new ones. Oh, no. Cut your losses. <laughs> exactly. Right. Move, move on. You I mean, know? if you compare you know, that with food, you know, it makes a whole lot more sense. Let's say you buy food that tastes as bad or is spoiled. Before you can eat good food, you have to eat all the bad food? Absolutely not. Yeah, no way. <laughs> it's you out. throw it in the garbage. <laughs> and you should do the same with artwork. If it's crap, it's crap. You know? Yeah. If I nobody know. wants it, you know, at best, keep it in your drawer and, or your closet and you know, put it in a collection of work that you think is great but nobody wants to buy. But don't put it back for sale because obviously nobody wants it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, there's a, a lot of good things in the book. I like chapter three where you talk about wholesale, consignment, retail, and all the different outlets and the advantages of each one, which I think is really important. And it's not obvious. And again, one of the most often asked questions is, you know, what is the difference between wholesale, retail, consignment? And also a lot of people that ask questions and obviously don't realize that they are in a wholesale situation or in a retail situation or a consignment situation. And, and because if you don't know, then it's very difficult to do the right thing, you know, or even to know how to price your work. Exactly. You know, if somebody buys your work on a wholesale basis, you can't price it the same as if somebody buys your work on a retail basis. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you sell it on a consignment basis, then that's another thing. And galleries, if uh, you're interested in selling your work through galleries, they only do consignment. A gallery is not wholesale and it's not retail. As far as the artist is concerned, it's purely consignment. Right. So, and, well, and people get confused and they make errors. I mean, I remember a question from a student who was, that was about, uh, you know, if I give my work to a gallery, do I have to ship the work? Well, no. If you give it to the gallery, the gallery is supposed to sell it, collect the sales tax, and ship it if it has to be shipped. It's their job. They have the product. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what the gallery is doing is making the sale and then giving you all the responsibility, you know. Of delivery. Yeah, yeah. and it's not right. Yeah. No. Well, Chapter 4, Quantity or quality, there was one reviewer that remarked on Amazon about that chapter who said that even if you decided to do quantity after reading that chapter, at least you would know what to watch out for. That you it know would what still to be, yeah, yeah and, that it, be, yeah. and that it's very useful. It's going to be brutal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's a free country. If somebody wants to do quantity, so be it. And, you know, there are people that can make money with quantity, but you just have to have, A, no concern for quality, and B, a lot of energy, and know you what better you're have some into. help. Eventually, if you do quantity, there's something that's really, really important. If you're successful, you're going to have to hire employees. Oh, definitely. Because you just yeah. can't do it all by yourself. I don't I mean, want to. You know, what people don't realize is what is quantity. You know, they think they sell 100 pieces. That's quantity. No, quantity is selling thousands, if not tens of thousands of pieces, you know, a week. Right. And there's no way that you're going to do it by yourself. You're going to have to have somebody make it. You're going to have to have somebody keep track of the inventory. You're going to have to have somebody ship it. 
Um, you know, what people think is quantity is actually not quantity. It's because, you know, it's a misconception, you know. You want to see quantity, go to Walmart. That's quantity, right? They are selling millions and millions and millions of products every day. Uh, and and I know for a fact that I don't want to do that because there's no way that that equates high-quality art. You know, you, you become a vendor, basically. You become a, a, a machine that cranks out, you know, what supposedly is art and eventually becomes more like posters and postcards, you know. Right. Uh, and you make so little money from each item that you have to sell an extremely large volume of these items, which means you have to store them, which means, you know, eventually... It takes over your garage, and then you have to buy storage rental. Oh, know? yes, definitely. Um, and I remember one artist who sold pictures at Grand Canyon who had, well, not just at Grand Canyon, but he had like a storage unit almost in every single state. He sold posters I mean, in it was the unbelievable. Parks, and he had a storage unit next to every national park that he sold to. Exactly. And I think at the time that I met him, he had like 50 storage units. Unbelievable. And of course, now you have to make the rounds. And it's not the rounds in your neighborhood, it's the rounds across the United States, including exactly. Alaska. Yes. So you can imagine the amount of time spent doing that and the amount of money. I mean, lodging, gas, car maintenance. Well, I eventually mean, she killed herself because she drove in a snowstorm. She killed herself delivering posters in a snowstorm. To Grand Canyon. To Grand Canyon, because the store called and said, we need posters. She went to the storage, picked out whatever posters she needed. There was a snowstorm. She couldn't delay, and she crashed, and she died. So so quantity can kill. Yeah. I mean, it's not a joke. If you had done quantity, quality, you know, what's a week, right? Right. Uh, You can wait until after the snowstorm, and you can also ship it by the post office or UPS. Exactly. And uh, the, the problem with quantity is that it demands attention immediately because, you know, of the volume. When right. the store runs out, they run out, and it can happen very quickly, and you make no money if they are not selling, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, you know, and because you make so little money, you depend on a constant sale, constant right. rotation of the product. It, I don't think it works for artists, but if somebody is so inclined as to want to do that, I'm not here to stop anybody. I just know that if somebody says, should I? The answer is no. Right. <laughs> you know. Well, I, this is a, I wish we had had something like this when we first started our business. I it's tell the you. manual. <laughs> <laughs> it would yeah. have saved a lot of time and a lot of money. money. Well, we, we would have made more money we faster. Would have, yeah. Exactly. We would have yeah. made more money yeah. because right now, yeah. even when you and I have our discussions, I talk to you about how much money we left on the table. That we could we could have made much more money at Grand Canyon than we did well, if, if we, we had, had understood known. Uh, pricing earlier. If we had right. understood doing quality earlier, I know you you have to look at the wealthiest artists in the world, and the wealthiest artists in the world are not the ones that do quantity. Right. You know, uh, quantity does not result in a million pri- dollar price tag on a, on a piece of art. It results in a you know one dollar price tag on a postcard. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's very difficult to compete with quantity because of the people that do it are produce they are really doing massive quantity right and and i think that what artists don't understand is what is involved when we do quantity they think hundreds or thousands no we're talking millions millions of pieces you know like i say you know you want to see quantity go to walmart and and just get a feel for the numbers you know and the numbers are staggering i mean soon enough you find yourself you know renting a warehouse you know and 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 of course people think well that means you're successful well 
you know, if, if having a warehouse is a mark of success, yeah, you're successful. But the bottom line is your profit margin is ridiculously small. And if the, the, product, the product stops selling, you're immediately under. Yeah. Because you constantly, constantly have, you know, to sell. And then the other problem is, you know, if one store starts to really, really, really sell more than the other, there's a tendency to make that store your only customer. And if that store shuts down, you're dead. Or if that store starts to want a lower price from you, they have total control over your, your destiny, right. your life, literally. Because they can tack you down in price. And what can you do? You depend on them. Right. And a lot of stores will do that. They'll get you to deliver more and more product f to them. They'll get you to depend more and more on them for income. You know, that is, eventually they'll uh, force you, because of time limitations, to no longer offer your product to other customers. And then when you're basically, you know, totally tied up to them, they'll ask for a price drop. Right. And then what? Or what they'll go to the competition. Well, they'll usually do both. If you say no, they'll go to the competition and then they'll come back at you and say, he's willing to give it to me for 20% less than you. What do you say? And if you say no, you're out and, and you're not going to say no. Right. So basically you start to make less money for even more volume and and the problem is that you know when you when you look at the the choice between quality or quantity it seems at first a very simple choice that you know you may want to try both but when you start to do this as a career you know and it goes on for let's say 10 years you know or 15 years or longer the direction that you've taken becomes more and more so and so if you've started in the direction of quantity which is basically selling on risk of price and volume what you're, what you're, what's ha going to happen when you become successful is you're going to do more and more volume for a lower and lower price. Right. Either because of your own decisions, but usually because the store starts to control your destiny. They ask you for a price break. They ask you for a higher volume. And that's it. That's what you're going. And you sacrifice quality and you go berserk because you make no money from it. It's very frustrating. Um, on, the, on the other hand, if you go in the direction of quality, what you find yourself doing is increasing the quality because that's what generates higher prices and that's what generates customer f retention and fidelity and that's what generates higher success. Right. People demand ha always higher and higher quality. And so that's the good direction for artists. Well, and I also know that since we focus on quality that, um, you know, None of the artwork gets damaged at the post office well, or when have, it gets shipped because... We, yeah, we virtually have had no returns for years. I mean, I or, can't even remember when we had the last return. Or breakage. I'm talking breakage. No breakage. Yeah, well, but I mean, breakage and returns go hand in hand yeah. because if you get it break, broken, unless you are, you know, like nobody else, you're going to return it, <laughs> right? I had a framed piece, yeah. a large frame piece that I took to the post office and... Uh, the and lady. we ship far. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the, I was shipping to the East Coast, and, and uh, the lady that I was dealing with at the at the window, she had set the photograph uh, on a shelf, and it fell off. And mm -hmm. it says glass on the package and stuff. And uh, I said to her, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. I packed it really well. And she said, are you sure? And I said, I'm positive. It's It'll be fine. But her face just got really red and 
she was very embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, now when I walk in, it has never, ever happened again. Right. And the piece was okay. Yeah, and I knew test. it was okay because I had done a lot of things when I packed it so that it would be shock resistant mm-hmm. almost, you know, so that if it right. took a hit like mm-hmm. that, you know, the glass wouldn't just shatter yeah. or anything. So I knew it was okay. It dropped maybe three feet, four feet off a counter. Right. So I thought, well, you know, it'll be all right. But you can take the time to pack it properly because you're not doing volume. Right. You know, you don't have to pack a thousand packages a day. You know. Right. If when we were doing volumes, we did not have the time. Oh no. We had to spend maybe five minutes per as package. As fast as I could. As fast as we yeah. could. Basically, the the time limit was the fastest possible, and we had lots of returns because we had packages break. I mean, you know, basically returns are always going to be a percentage of the volume. So if you make thousands of sales and the percentage is 1%, you have to expect returns in the tens. If you make millions of sales, you have to expect returns in the thousands. But if you make sales in the tens or hundreds, it's negligible. It may be one and it may be zero, mm-hmm. you know, because you fall below the, the threshold in a sense. And, and that's the key, you know, plus you can spend more time. And if there is a problem, you can fix it, you know, in a very efficient manner. You can take your time as opposed to just, you know, rushing through you know, the problem. Right. You know. I remember when we were selling at the Grand Canyon, sometimes people ordered a 18 by 24 framed of Yavapai Dusk, you mm-hmm. know, the cover image of your book, and I would ship them a 16 by 20 framed right. by accident. Well, you know, you make mistakes like sure. that because, because you have volume, so many orders to ship and you're not yeah. double checking. Or, and you don't remember anybody. I mean, if somebody called, we're like, okay, and who are you? We had no idea. <laughs> yeah. There's no picture of what yeah. this person looks like in your mind. <laughs> People call and they, because you, you know, they met the artist personally and they only need to remember you, that you're going to remember them. But the problem is they have only us to remember while well, we had thousands. I mean, when we sold at like, the Grand Canyon, we literally saw millions of people. We can't remember anybody in particular. And so somebody would call and say, I want to purchase some work from you. Well, okay. And what is your number? Right? <laughs> right. Because, you know. I what saw thousands of number? people last week, you know, if not tens of thousands. I talked to, you know, a huge number of people. And, you know, I'm very sorry, but I have no idea who you are. And, and if they say, well, but you talked to me for a while, you know, so I did that with everybody else. And so that's a serious problem because people start to realize that they are just a number in, in a line. Right. You know, and, and that's not good. No, I don't you think want, so. You know, now we remember people by name. We... Uh, you know, we, they, are, they are basically friends. You know, it's a completely different relationship. Oh, it is. And it's way better. It's better for us. It's better for them. It's more fun. It's more pleasurable. Um, you know, so, you know, basically to sum this up, you know, do quality, don't do quantity. You know, and buy my right. book. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it will help you a lot. Definitely. If it doesn't help, uh, call us and uh, we'll take care of the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll have a solution, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's it. And uh, in the future, you know, because marketing is a constantly evolving concept, you know, especially now with the Internet where things change rapidly and new forms of marketing come up all the time, we will have an advanced marketing seminar. And that, I think, is important talking about because, uh, you know, the book is one thing, but a book is not a cure-all solution, you know, because in business, uh, very often we end up having issues, difficulties, problems that are personal, you know, that are peculiar to our situation. And it also depends on the area that you're selling your work. Or you the know. country. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Or because the country. Because we have a lot That's of customers true. from overseas. We have lots of students from overseas. 
And, uh, you know, obviously you're not going to encounter the same difficulties in Australia as in the U.S. or in in Europe as in the U.S. Right. You know? And so that, that's also another... Well, subject. what I like about yeah. the seminars that we do is we have you bring your products to the seminar so we can look at it, but we also ask you to bring all of your problems so that we can come up yeah. with the solutions and then you'll be well on your way. And, and your marketing materials. Yeah, all right. of your marketing Basically, materials. Basically, we are evaluating the quality of the marketing, the sellability of the piece. We are there to solve problems that are you know peculiar that may be unique to you and to watch your salesmanship techniques uh we to are, do we are it here all. to demonstrate salesmanship i mean i think yeah. we were talking about doing a live salesmanship session salesmanship is something that has to be learned by doing oh definitely I mean, we can certainly study the theory but it's just like photography the theory can only take you so far eventually you have to apply it it's practice. The last time that I taught salesmanship, because usually I teach that, I was so thrown off when I was teaching it. When somebody <laughs> in the class said, I'll take it, I, I just went blank. I mean, I stopped and you said, wait a second, you know, are you serious? Is this for real or are you just role playing? Yeah. He goes, no, it's for real. And you said, well, just, well, just let Natalie finish teaching yeah. the salesmanship part. And then, you know, we'll deal with the yeah. sale afterwards. And he bought it. <laughs> he did. I mean, we were shocked. We were like, this is he not did. supposed to happen. You are not supposed to buy I was the teaching materials. <laughs> right? yes. But it, it so happened that you had done such a beautiful job that he, he wanted the piece. He and did it for was his for daughter. A, his daughter's birthday. It was, yeah. yeah. It was his daughter's yeah. birthday And I think you shipped it. Or I forgot how it worked. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was quite amazing. So that shows that you're a good teacher, right? <laughs> if yeah. you can sell to the student while teaching how to sell, there's no doubt. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So keep an eye out for, you know, announcements on our seminars. And also join our newsletter because uh, that's how you'll be informed personally of what we are doing. And you can just go on my site. At the top of every page, there is a button that says subscribe. And when you subscribe, you'll get 40 uh, ebooks uh, in PDF format for free. And then uh, I constantly add new ones. And you'll also be receiving my free newsletter. So it's all good. And uh, it will help you a lot you know, with your marketing or with any aspect of photography because, of course, we cover all the other aspects as well. So thank you for listening. This is uh, the end of this podcast. And uh, stay in tune because, uh, or stay in touch, sorry, <laughs> because we'll have more podcasts very, very soon. Thank you very much. Bye.